We have a little bit of cleaning up to do on aisle chapter 14. We didn't quite finish the chapter, but we're looking at the last three verses, and then we're going to work our way through chapter 15. There's a bit of a consistent theme you'll find within Matthew chapter 15. We're going to attempt to tackle the whole chapter this morning, but with the smell of the potluck and the food in the back, uh, that might be short-lived. Beginning with verse 34, again, following after really two amazing miracles following after Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, which was more like 20,000 when you factor in the women and the children, followed by Jesus then sending the disciples across the sea, Jesus coming to them in the midst of the storm. Following all of these things, we're told that when they had crossed over, so the storm has ceased, the winds have calmed, they came to the land of Gennesaret, And when the men of that place recognized him, that word recognized, probably better translated, when they they had gotten word that he was there, when they heard that he had arrived, that he was in the place, that they sent out into all of the surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick. The words that jump out to me are the words all. From all of the surrounding region, they brought all who were sick. And they begged Jesus that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Again, one of those examples where Matthew doesn't give us enough information. It's kind of a a, a glance by the conclusion of a chapter, the transitioning to other things. But don't miss the radical nature of what's being described here. He gets to the land of Gennesaret. Imagine being on the shore. You saw the same storm. You witnessed the same wind, the same howling waves. You saw the rain, the lightning, the roar. Maybe even you had seen from a vantage point a boat caught in the waves. Whether you saw Jesus walking on the water, whether you saw the exchange that he had with Peter or not, how weird would it have been, again, taking together the the, the accounts we have from the various gospel authors, Jesus catches Peter, they get into the boat. Immediately, not only do the winds cease, but boom, John tells us that they're kind of horizontally raptured three and a half miles to the shore. But the, but the storm's gone in an instant. Imagine just being there, having no idea the exchange that was happening, not privy to the events on, on, on the sea itself, but just standing there, big storm, boom, perfect calm, right? And then from the calm, there's the boat. (laughs) And the word spreads, it's Jesus. And all of these towns, they bring to him all of their sick. Again, there's this amazing desperation within the people. A longing. Faith. In fact, uniquely in this particular miracle, they don't need Jesus to touch them or to speak to them. They just want to touch the hem of his garment. Again, not... Unique in the sense that we haven't seen this before. We have another example of a woman. As Jesus was making his way across town, a woman who had this flow of blood for 12 years that made her unclean, had had separated her from her family. This woman comes up in the midst of this crowd. You know, the crowds are thronging around Jesus. It's shoulder to shoulder, bumper to bumper. I mean, it's packed. And this woman weaves her way incognito, and we're told what? She touches the hem of his garment, and immediately she's healed. And Jesus stops, right? Who touched me? And the disciples are like, everyone's touching you. 
Again, an interesting, interesting idea that you can be around Jesus, you can rub shoulders with Jesus, you can be around the people of Jesus and not actually touch Jesus in faith to encounter him with a healing power. So we see an example of this woman being healed. Again, the touching of, of the garment just being the, the, the object, the connecting point of her faith. We see a similar thing in a more broad scope here in Gennesaret. They begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Complete healing. Verse 1 of chapter 15, Then the scribes and Pharisees, who were from Jerusalem, came to Jesus. Now, we should pause there and give a little context. We're given two groups, scribes, and we're given the indicator of Pharisees. The Pharisees were a political party of the day. Think of them as the religious right. They were the orthodox. They were the conservatives. They were the traditionalists. Uh, the Pharisees were the Bible believers. I mean, they held to the God's word very seriously to the point that they wanted to make sure that they obeyed every little, every little commandment, even to the point that they added onto the commandments more commandments just to make sure that they were perfect and blameless and their care of God's word. And then you had the scribes, this group that really developed during the Babylonian captivity, not necessarily associated with a political party per se, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but these were the lawyers of the day. They were the experts they were kind of the gatekeepers. And so you have these two groups. You have scribes, you have Pharisees, and we're told they came from Jerusalem, which is quite an interesting and amazing detail. Jesus is in Galilee presently. Again, we find him in Gennesaret. He's in the Galilee, which is not near Jerusalem. In fact, it's many miles away from Jerusalem. To go from Jerusalem to the Galilee, you would have to cross some rough terrain to get yourself to the Jordan River Valley, and then you go north. It was a trek. So we have this coalition, this group, that finds it important enough to make the journey. But in addition to the distance and the geography that would have to be trekked, there was a cultural uh, division as well. You see, within the Galilee, there was a, a great melting pot of ethnicity. You had Jewish enclaves right next to Gentile cities. There was a blending Two to three million people, give or take, is what Josephus, a first century historian, says of the Galilee. But this was a mixed group, again, a melting pot in the truest sense. And the Jews from Judea, the Jews from Jerusalem, in a lot of ways, they looked down upon the Jews that were in the Galilee. They had a prejudice. They thought they were better than, than they were, that they were purer than they were. So the fact we have these hoity-toity religious people, the experts, the scholars, leaving their high tower... They're in Jerusalem, coming down into the people. They go into the Galilee to rub shoulders with, with the people. And they come to Jesus. And we're told here by Matthew that they came to Jesus and they said, they asked, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. There's a little bit of audaciousness from this particular question and the context of things we've just seen, right? They, they come to Jesus and they're going to ask a question. On the, the coattails of the feeding of the 5,000 
and the walking on water and this miracle season in Gennesaret where people are touching the hem of his garment and are being healed of all of their diseases. And you're going to come to that guy with a question and your question centers on why do you guys not wash your hands? Like of all of the things that you could come up with to ask a question concerning, they're not like, hey, how did you multiply the loaves and the fish? Or the walking on water thing, did that really happen? Or what's the deal with, with the, the mass of healings that are taking place? No, they travel this whole distance, and what are they concerned about? Hey, you guys don't wash your hands when you eat. Like there is, just in reading it, a little audacity to that. Kind of like, what? Now, this question is a little deeper than that because they're, they're asking about Jesus and his disciples, their approach to not God's word and not the law of God, but we're told very specifically the tradition of the elders. Also notice that they don't ask Jesus about the traditions, but they ask Jesus about the disciples you know, they already understand, and I think this is one of the things that, that ticked them off, that this comparison between them and Jesus, they would never win on, right? I mean, you look at the way that Jesus handled people and ministered to people and loved people and taught people and worked in the lives of people. And you're the religious people, and you're kind of comparing. If you try to compare yourself to Jesus, they even understand this is a lose-lose. So their, their, their attack here is about the disciples. I would also say that this is probably, you know, if you go back to the feeding of the 5,000, everyone ate but whom? Jesus. And so the question is, you know, your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders, of the fathers. Uh, they don't wash their hands. Again, missing the fact that they're out in the wilderness, the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah, they didn't wash their hands. The ceremonial cleansing. Now, we should address the idea here of the tradition of the elders. And again, the development of these traditions that would be found in the, the Mishnah, the Talmud, uh, some of these extra rabbinical writings. The, the, the traditions were rooted, say this lightly, and I think to a degree, uh, a genuine uh, intent. Keep in mind, within the flow of the narrative of the Old Testament, you know, God calls the Hebrew people out of Egypt to be his people, chosen, separated. He leads them through the wilderness miraculously, codifies them, gives them the law. He's separating them. They're to be holy. They're to be a light into the world. He leads them to a land of promise. He establishes them in this land. And then there's this up and down, crazy 400 plus years of just nonsense where they would obey God, and then they would uh, start to dabble into sin, and that dabbling would turn into full-blown compromise. So God would raise up a nation to judge them, and they would be small judges, and, and it would just be this progress where then they would be like, oh my goodness, we're being judged here because of our sin. And so they would repent, and then there would be this cycle on and on and on to the point that ultimately God's like, you guys are not getting it, and you're transgressing the law. And really, the transgressions of the law centered on three things. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you find that the big, the big errors, the big sins, was first the Sabbath. You know, God had this wonderful institution where he separated a day where they weren't to work. Not to earn holiness, but to represent holiness. Not to make them perfect, but the rest that God wanted them to have from the state that they had as his children. Take a day off. They didn't listen. And then it was take a year off, and they didn't listen. 
every seventh year. Take the whole year off. That sounds like a good deal. Work six, you know that sixth year, if you obey me, you'll have such a plenty, you won't have to work the seventh. Sign me up. I'm down for that. And yet for 490 years, they didn't obey this. And so they hadn't let the land rest, and so they hadn't obeyed the Sabbath. And so God used the Babylonian Empire to judge them and to remove them from the land for 70 years. We're going to pay back the land what it's due. So they hadn't obeyed the Sabbath. And so when you get to the New Testament, you find what's the big issue that they have with Jesus? One of the big sticking points with Jesus and these religious leaders is Jesus' perspective on the Sabbath because he didn't obey their traditions. Jesus said he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He understood the intent of the Sabbath. He understood the law of the Sabbath. Jesus never transgressed God's intent for the Sabbath. And yet the traditions that they had added to it, he gave no mind to. Now, why did they add traditions to the Sabbath? Well, they had been judged for not obeying the Sabbath. So while they're in exile, you had the emergence of the scribes who come along and they're like, hey, we really need to obey this. And we're not to work, but that's kind of vague. Wish God had given us some more details, so let's extrapolate on work. And so they came up with all of these, you know, additions to the word of God to define something that God intended to be vague. So they define work. You could only walk so many paces. You could, you know, this was classified as work and this wasn't. Even today, you go to Israel. On the Sabbat, the elevator hits every floor because to press a button is to work and you're not allowed to work. Like it's, it's insane. But again, the intent was we don't want to transgress the law of God. So to be careful on that, let's add to it this, these traditions to just safeguard us from accidentally slipping into sin. And Jesus is like, well, in adding to the word of God, you've missed the word of God. You don't understand it. And Jesus had, there was a contention about the Sabbath. You also had the same thing in regards to the temple. You know, the temple was supposed to be this meeting place where the world could come to encounter the living God. And yet, if you go back through the history of Israel, you, you would see occasion after occasion where the temple and the processes of the temple would get corrupted. And it would become perverse. And again, when you get to Jesus and his constant battle with the religious people, what's the other issue that, that it centers on? The temple. Because they didn't understand what the temple was about. There was no need for a temple when God was in human flesh in their midst. So they battle about, and this, so they had all these traditions. Jesus gets violent concerning the temple. Two different occasions, Jesus would enter the temple, sit there, stew, seeing the money changers, what the, the traditions and the, the legalists had made his father's house, and he would end up driving out the money changers. You remember the two stories, two different occasions, one with a rod and one with a whip. My father's house will not be a house of thieves, Jesus would say. You guys have missed it. And then the third thing, again, within Nehemiah's context, the children of Israel ended up being judged by God because they hadn't remained holy and separate from the Gentiles around them. Now understand, God did not separate the Jews from the Gentiles in an issue of hierarchy. But they were separated to be an example, to be light, to show a better way to live. Read through the book of Leviticus and it's, it's under, undercurrent, it's core principles. Wasn't that the Jews were better than the Gentiles, it's that they were given a special unique purpose and place in the world surrounding Gentiles. And yet, Jewish history 
They would constantly get into trouble when what? When their sons would go and marry the daughters of the surrounding nations and they would be led into idolatry and there would just be wickedness and perversion and, and it was a bad thing. So we get to the Babylonian exile. Now they're in a foreign land and the scribes are like, we can't do this again. And so they started adding all of these traditions, all of these, these things to try to keep the Jews from, from stumbling back into the same error. Well, you get to Jesus, and what happened? The, the Jews are incredibly bigoted and racist towards the Gentiles. They hated them. We'll see this play itself out in the remaining of the chapter. And Jesus will constantly contrast that, whether it's the woman at the well or some of the stories we'll look at this morning. You guys have missed what the heart behind all of this was. So we have these traditions. Jesus' problem with these religious leaders wasn't their interpretation of God's word. It was the things they were adding to God's word that weren't there, that God had never specified. And so they come, and one of the examples that they presented was your disciples, they don't wash before they eat the way that, the way that we have determined. And again, you go back into Leviticus, and God had all kinds of um, requirements about, about animals that were clean animals that were unclean, things that were permissible to eat, things that were not permissible to eat. And instead of just leaving it there, it was like, well, if what we eat matters concerning our righteousness, then we need to make sure that even the good things that we eat aren't defiled by some of the germs or some of the uncleanness that might be on our hands. So it had these ritual washings, which if you're out in the wilderness and Jesus is breaking bread, multiplying fish, no one's like, hey, where's the hand-washing bucket first? It's like we're going to eat and, and be filled and be whole. And so they come and they're like, y'all don't wash your hands. Shame on you. Not to say that you shouldn't wash your hands before you eat. That's a good thing. But Jesus answered, he said to them, and I love this. He says, why do you transgress the commandments of God? Because of your traditions. <laughs> Answering a why question with a why question. Why do you guys not obey the traditions of the elders? Well, why don't you guys obey the, the law through your traditions? Why do you disobey it? And then Jesus provides an example. Verse 4, and he quotes from Exodus. He says, for God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, so this is what God says, but you say, Never a, good, never a good thing. If you ever find yourself in that dynamic, check yourself, right? This is what God says, but this is what I say. Not a good place to be. Jesus said, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God no effect by your tradition. Now that all sounds a little funky. Let me explain what's happening here. God was clear about the relationship that parents were to have to children, and God was clear in the law about the relationship children were to have to their parents. Regarding the children, you were to honor your father and mother. That doesn't necessarily mean you obey your father and mother, always. If you live under their roof, there's an application to that. You're to honor them. But even once you've moved out, you're your own man. You're to honor your father and mother. And again, God kind of left that very vague so that its application was very wide, so that we would narrow it. 
And in our world, there is a dynamic where we're to honor our father and mother, especially when they're in an in, in elderly or older age, when they're seasoned citizens. We're to take care of them. We're to come along and help them. You know, we are a unique culture. We're unique, like Western civilization is unique broadly and the way that we deal with the elderly. Because we have largely, by and large, removed the responsibility for the care of the elderly from the children of the elderly, and we've placed it into the hands of the state. That the state will take care of the elderly and not the children. That is a very unique thing in world history. It's a unique thing in other parts of the world. Your kids, you've taken care of. You've made sacrifices for You've dumped a lot of money into them. And at some point, the dynamic is that they're going to repay the favor. That they're going to take care of you when you need it. At some point, those little fannies where you've changed their diapers, you're going to want them to reciprocate and change your diapers. It's fair. Now, within Jewish culture, this is what God said, honor your father and mother. When they're in need, take care of them. Make sacrifices for them. Honor them. Now, what, what was happening? And what's Jesus addressing? He's like, this is what the law said. This is what God said. But you guys had developed this tradition. It was called Korban. Corbin, however you want to pronounce it. Basically, it was the, the, the loophole. The legal loophole. You see, if you, as, a, as a son, if you went to the temple, went to the priests, and you, you dedicated everything you had to the service of God. This blanketed statement. God, everything I have is yours. Now, I'll still manage it and use it, spend it, but it's all yours. You see, if you had done that, if you had made this vow, and your parents come along and they're like, hey, we really need some help now. You can say, well, I'm sorry, it's not mine, it's God's. And because it's God's, I can't, I can't give it to you. And God's telling me you're not really worth it. That this is literally what was happening in that day and age. And so they come and they're like, why are your, your disciples not obeying the traditions of the elders? They're not washing their hands. Jesus doesn't answer the question. He gives his own question. Why do you guys not obey God? And you've developed these traditions to circumvent your obedience to God. And then he adds, he says, hypocrites. You know, again, I, I love the fact Jesus was like the least seeker-friendly pastor around. This is his audience. He's like, you're a hypocrite. Now, in the Greek, this idea of a hypocrite, it, it actually is rooted in the theater. It's to masquerade. It's to play a part. It's to act a role that you're really not. It's to pretend. It's the role play. Hypocrites. Now, these were the religious people of the day. These were the people that were so focused on obeying God that they had all these additional traditions established to safeguard them from somehow erring or falling into sin or making a mistake. I mean, these were the righteous people of the day. And Jesus is like, you guys are hypocrites. You think you're holy. In fact, you act holy, you're outwardly demonstrating, playing a role, looking apart, but internally you're not that. You're a hypocrite. 
You're a poser. That's how we would phrase it in today's lingo. You're fake. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you. And then he quotes from Isaiah 29. He says, these people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me. Teaching is doctrine, the commandments of men. What a heavy statement. What a heavy accusation. And you know, we should always be careful. You know, it's very easy to fall into the habit, the pattern of taking traditions and putting them on par with the Word of God. We see examples of this all over the place when it comes to church culture. Now, there's nothing wrong with tradition. In fact, there are certain instances, I think traditions can be a wonderful thing, can connect you back to something. I think certain traditions, especially traditions that last generations, some of them have merit in them. But then there are other traditions that get exalted to to a place that, that they shouldn't occupy. This is what God says, but I say, wait a second. Let's just go back to what God says. And let's leave it the w- where God says it. And if it's vague, let's leave it vague. Tradition. To be a hypocrite. If we can be honest, we're all hypocrites to an extent. I mean, we all are. If you find a perfect church, don't attend because you'll screw it up. You know, fault. You know, fault's an interesting thing. You know that it is very possible to find fault in everything. (laughs) And beyond everything, if you look hard enough, you can find fault in everyone. Every person in this room, if you look hard enough, you'll find fault. You'll find something worthy of accusation. Why? We're fallen. And by definition, fallenness is going to lead to fault. And we're in this process. You know, we talk about salvation. Salvation in the scriptures, it's presented in three different tenses. We're saved. Like there is a moment where you come to the end of yourself and you accept what Jesus has done on your behalf. This is who I am and who I am is not working. And you've promised to transform who I am into someone else, and I'm going to take you up on that. And you're going to forgive me of my sin, and you're going to give me a fresh start, and you're going to wipe me clean, and and you're going to work in me and through me. And I want that, and I'm going to surrender to that, and I'm going to accept that, and you're saved. And positionally, in, in regards to heaven, you are perfect, and you're righteous. You have been justified. That means that when God looks at you, he sees you just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees you if you've accepted Jesus. From the vantage point of God, you cannot be any more perfect than you presently are. You are fit for heaven and glory right now. And that should be very liberating and freeing. When God looks at you, he doesn't see all the other stuff. He sees righteousness. He sees his son. He sees the covering of God's blood. And that's what gives you a fresh start. 
When God sees you, he sees Jesus, meaning you're righteous, bro. And right on. You're right. Sa- saved, positionally in heaven, I'm perfect. I can't get any better than I am, nor can I get any worse. Now, there's another component of we will be saved, a future aspect of salvation. Paul describes it where this, what is corrupted, takes on incorruption. Where the full finality of our salvation, we're, 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 we enter glory, and this bag of bones, this tent, the flesh, this warped tendency to do the wrong thing is removed. We're finally freed of. We enter glory. So we are saved in a permanent sense the moment we give our lives to Jesus. And positionally in heaven, we're righteous. We're good. It's all good, man. And then at some point, we will be saved. That moment when we're finally called home and that final act of restoration. But there is an aspect of salvation in the middle. Paul will say we are being saved. That there's this process. Meaning that like, This has no role in my position before God, but in a very practical sense, I'm not quite Jesus yet. (laughs) Do you know that? And this is where we can find fault with everyone. You see, I can't find fault with your position in heaven, but I can look at your life right now and find fault in areas that you don't exactly look like Jesus. The only person you'll never find fault in is Jesus, (laughs) because he's the only one sinless and the only one perfect. And we should abide by God's word, and we should set aside tradition, and it's all about the heart. Jesus says, these people, they draw near to me with their mouth. This should not be us. They honor me with their lips. They say the right things. They even worship the right way. But their heart, it's all all fake. It's all a facade. You know, Calvary 316 will often get accused of being kind of a group of misfits, that we're kind of a, an interesting group of people, you know, this group of Jesus followers. You know, because there are traditions of men that we don't exactly follow. We try to obey God's word and follow the laws of God, but there are certain traditions and, and other things that have developed over time, you know. Well, yeah, we're saved by grace, but we're, you know, we're saved by grace and doing these things. Or we're saved by grace or not doing those things when it's like, no, I'm saved by grace alone, period. It's not about what I do or refrain from doing that makes me any more righteous with God. I follow Jesus, and where he leads me, I go. Okay, I might have a beer at lunch. But there's nothing in the Bible that says that I can't have a beer at lunch. Now, there's a lot of traditions that say I, I, I don't, and there's a whole church culture that says I shouldn't. But if I look at the, at the scriptures, I think really when it's all said and done, I should drink like Jesus drank. Good stuff. Now, yeah, there's a whole, I'm going to get blown up by this. There are traditions. And we'll get accused at this place of like, well, you guys don't obey these traditions. But here's the danger. Here's the danger. Anytime you take things that even might be good and you add them to God's word, you're doing a disservice to the people that are listening to you. And you're doing a disservice to them because we should never take traditions and put them on par with God's word because it's God's word that's living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and has the ability to change a heart from the inside out and not a tradition. 
And anytime we convolute, the two people get lost and confused. Because they think, they think, well, I don't drink, it makes me better than you. Well, no, it doesn't. I continue. No, we're going to get through this chapter. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. <laughs> when Jesus says, listen to me and understand what I'm about to do, that's, that's an important thing. Important disclaimer. Verse 11. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But Jesus answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. The implications will be uprooted by his father. Leave them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered, again, no one, no one asked him a question. This Peter's style. And he said to Jesus, explain this parable to us. <laughs> and so Jesus said, are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man? For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts, false witness and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Please keep in mind that what Jesus is saying here to the ears listening in this moment in time is radical, it's revolutionary, it was jaw-dropping. This would be the equivalent in our culture of a mic drop. Because Jesus in this moment, I mean, he is calling out the entire underpinning of not just Jewish religion, but all religion. You see, there's really only two approaches when it comes to reconciling with God. There is the religious way. And the religious way will give you things to do to earn the approval of God. It will give you a ladder to climb, works to be done, so that you can stand before God and say, I am a good person, this is my resume. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I haven't done this, and I, and I don't do that. And you come to God with a resume. These are all the things that I do to be good, to earn your favor, to receive your blessing. The Jews did it in their own way. They had the law of God, and then they had the traditions of the elders on top of that. It was all a structure by which they could prove to God that they were worthy, that they were good. And aside from the Jews, you have Islam that does the same thing, a religious theology that presents to its followers a very systematic, largely simple set of commands to obey to earn the favor of Allah. 
God. And the Mormons have their codifications and lists of things to do. Christians do. Catholics do. There's a lot. Everybody, there's religion giving you things to do so that God might look at you one day when you stand before him and say, you're good enough. But what Jesus is saying here is he's saying the things that you do don't change the heart. That morality doesn't work from the outside in. Instead, what Jesus is saying here is that it works from the inside out of a man. He says what comes out of a man, that's how you know what's inside of the man. That morality is something that begins in here and works its way out. Let me ask you this. It's a good way of thinking about it. Are you the sum total of the things that you do? Or do the things that you do manifest from who you are? Think of it maybe in a different way. Are you a sinner because you sin? Or do you sin because you're a sinner? You see, the Bible says that, that sin is a nature. That sin is something that, 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 that I, that's imparted to me at the beginning. I'm born into Adam. I'm born with a sin nature. I don't think about it this way. What's harder to do, the right thing or the wrong thing? <laughs> it's much harder to do the right thing. Is, is it, let me put it this way. Is it easier is it easier to cheat on your taxes? Or is it harder to make sure every little line gets covered? Well, it's much easier to fudge. Is it, is it easier to tell the truth? Or is it easier to lie? You see, the reason that sin is easy, let's put it this way. The reason that sin comes naturally is because it's natural. We're born broken. We're born flawed. And what happens is in sin and this nature with my heart, what happens? My behaviors come out of that. I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm really good at it. And yet, if behavior is what makes the person, and it's not the person that manifests the behavior, then what happens? Well, I'm going to try to fix the person by doing what? Changing the behaviors. If I can change, it's the whole basis of psychology. If I can change your behaviors, I will change who you are. So you sit down with a counselor, and they start running through all the things that you need to change in order to what? Change yourself. The problem is, is that Jesus says that's, it doesn't work. You see, what Jesus is offering, what he's describing, what he's presenting here, is the opposite of religion. Jesus is saying that salvation isn't something that you earn, that you reach up, that you grab hold of. It's not about your work to prove yourself worthy. It's about Jesus reaching down to you who is not worthy and his work to save you. You see, the entire idea of the gospel message is that something happens inside of me. That this heart of stone gets removed and gets replaced with the spirit of the living God. Where this, this tendency, this desire, we talk about the heart. See, Jesus even brings it up. He says, their heart is far from me. Their actions look great. Their words are sweet, but their heart is rotten. 
and it's because their heart is rotten that all these other things are pointless. They're worthless. But if you want to change a person, how do you change a person? Do you change their behaviors or do you change the person? See, the gospel message is that Jesus wants to change you. And in doing so, what happens? If he changes you, what comes out of you changes naturally. It's organic. It's simple. Here were the Jews. They had this whole list of traditions and laws and things they were trying to obey and this this ladder they were climbing. And they felt condemned by it. Why? Because you can never be good enough. You can never be good enough. That's why the Bible says, none are good, no, not one. Well, you haven't met me, Zach. Well, let me hang out with you for a minute. Because even that statement right there is filled with pride, which makes you more like Satan than anybody else. Even when, we, even when you can like, okay, I'm going to do this for God, and you do it for him. What always happens? You feel real good about what you did which is pride, as opposed to like, Jesus changes me and things are happening through me and I can't take any credit for it. Again, you can go back through the Psalms. Put your spirit inside of me. Change me from the inside out. Change the heart. And what comes out of the life changes. These are the things which defile a man. (laughs) Eating with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus will transition all of this. He'll leave the Galilee. And he goes to a very unique place. He goes outside of the land of promise. He leaves the Jewish community, and he goes to the Gentiles. And we'll have presented for us a woman, and this will be the tease for next week. He will present a woman who is a Canaanite. And yet we see something manifesting from her heart that contrasts her radically from the hypocrites, from the religious right. And then you're going to see Jesus in Gentile areas. And what does he do? He feeds the 4,000, which is not a repeating of the same miracle of the feeding of the five. Totally different scene, totally different group of people, totally different numbers. But it's all, it's all a foreshadowing of really what the gospel will do for the world. Because again, Jesus is the only moral leader, the only religious leader. He's the only one that said, you can trust me because I'm going to die and three days later be resurrected. But he's also the only one that the entire model has nothing to do with what you do for God, but has everything to do with what God has done for you. Let me say that again because don't, if you, if you miss everything else this morning, don't miss that statement. What Jesus came as he says that it has nothing to do with what you do for God and has everything to do with what God has done for you. It's about accepting something in faith. It's not working to earn it. Your relationship with God is not about your work. It's about his work. It's not your work for him. It's his work in you. It's not the sacrifices that you make for God. 
to earn his favor. It's about the one sacrifice he made for you to bestow his favor. That you don't, in your Christian experience, have to work and labor to maintain something, to earn something, to still be in the good graces of someone. You have it, it's bestowed, it's yours, you live in it, you abide in it, you enjoy it, you accept it. And what does it do? It changes everything. Most importantly, it changes you. So Father, Lord, thank you for your word.